Welcome all to the Mandalorian podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial podcast for the Outer Rim Territories. My name is Matt, and joining me in the living waters beneath the minds of Mandalore is Pete. Hello there, Pete. What up, all my Mandos and Mandettes? The Mandalorian podcast by Fantastic Geek dons our helmets for Chapter 20, The Foundling. Pete, today we're going to be talking a great new episode in the Star Wars universe with some nostalgic elements as we look back tomorrow talking about the super nostalgia stuff picard episode 306 looking forward to that podcast greatly uh in what was a really top tier episode yes with two more screeners dropping after that now uh so trying to keep a lid on further secrets we'll we'll talk what's been actually seen by the entire audience tomorrow but back to Star Wars, Matt, what might be seen? Yes, uh, Damon Lindelof and his writing partner have exited the Star Wars movie that doesn't have a, uh, a title, but will be directed by uh, Charmaine Oboid Chinoy. So Pete, no problems there. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Uh, how are you? Stephen Knight has maybe the most unorthodox resume and imdb in hollywood peaky blinders he created who wants to be a millionaire um and now is taking over i i gotta tell you i'm i'm broken up that damon lindelof and uh justin Britt gibson have left this star wars film um you know, this on the heels of Lindelof's uh, quotes last week out of South by Southwest, where he's, um, you know, promoting uh, Miss Davis, that a Star Wars film shouldn't exist if it's not great. OK. And allegedly a draft was handed in February and now they're gone. But. Still, you have the director attached, and now you've brought in this other writer. I mean, whatever. I We're worrying about Star Wars movies right now when I would argue we're at peak Star Wars TV. So is there urgency? There, I guess, might be some if you're looking to have a multifaceted media conglomeration uh, presentation. Um and certainly, Pete, that some bad Star Wars news, some great Star Wars news was the reveal in the last week that uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once Oscar winners, Daniels, uh, that's your plural, sometimes called The Daniels, but that's not how they're credited, Pete. That's just what people mistype on deadline. Daniels um, directed an episode on Skeleton Crew, uh, which, of course, that show thought to come out this fall what was weird was the people some of the people writing the articles were like they will direct it's like no 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 a show that comes out in about six months probably all those episodes have already been directed pete adding to the weirdness they said they directed it before everything everywhere all at once came out and that had a march release date you want to say full wide release that was like june but skeleton crew didn't start shooting until july at least that's what's been publicly stated. So kind of but they watch had this photos of Jude Law at celebration in April on the set in costume with the volume 
So I'm sure we're going to find out the, the full time frame. But, you know, like I said, why are you why are we stressing about the the film aspect of the universe where you've got Oscar winning filmmaker, writer, directors who are coming in and moonlighting with episodes of of TV? Um, it, it's OK. Add to this the news this week that uh, Gita Vasant Patel who uh, had directed for HBO's House of the Dragon, uh, did an episode of Ahsoka, uh, which supposedly will be later summer, we're hearing. Um, so yeah, I mean, TV and film-like, smaller screen, robust, they'll they'll get the film thing ironed out. It, it's okay. Again, I'm, I'm bummed Lindelof's not going to, you know, have been the writer on this may still get a credit we don't fully know an arbitration process and everything like that regardless pete now it's time to hit the hunt the sun yawns over the craggy surface of rock crock world as the mandalorian coverts training outside its cave by the water where it was viciously attacked Bo-Katan watches as they practice with fibroblades and judges declare winners while others hone their hand-to-hand combat or work with flamethrowers, blasters, rockets, jetpacks, and spears. Grogu, meanwhile, sits by the water, cooing as rocks move, but it's not him making it happen. He picks up one, and it's a hermit-like crab, that retracts. Din Djarin tells him to put it down because it's time he learn with the other foundlings. Playtime's over as he picks him up and all the rock crabs retreat into the water. Pete, we can tell earlier in the scene that Bo-Katan is feeling at home with all of this. It's because of all the emotions that she conveys by turning her head in the helmet. Not a criticism, just an interesting... Uh, that certainly is the feeling Actually, I got. Katie Sackoff, too, in the helmet. Uh, all the more impressive. Um, we have Grogu, uh, by way of Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, challenging uh, Kid Blue. I know we're going to get a proper name for him a little bit. Ragnar! Uh, Ragnar! Ragnar. Um, but I, I rather like the, the nickname Kid Blue here. Um... They're going to fight with darts. Uh, we will see as the scene evolves that that's kind of a a proxy for the uh, you know the your your training version of the launcher that we've seen with the uh, the whistling birds and so forth. Uh, Kid Blue wonders why Grogu wears no helmet. He is told it's because he is too young to speak. Uh, they get those dart launchers. Speak the creed. Indeed, indeed. Um, the dart launchers are placed upon their wrists. The Judge character uh, gives us some rundown here, uh, which is particularly useful when we see how uh, how the fight unfolds. Each launcher has three darts. The first one to get the top score wins. Initially, I was like, wait, wouldn't it, should it be first one to three? No, by just saying top score, one can miss and so forth. Um there's a bit of a learning curve. Kid Blue hits Grogu with one paint dart, then another. 
Pete, that's almost the most that one could possibly get. Uh, Grogu is told to show them what he can do. Mando urging him on. Uh, Grogu does a force flip. Then another. Then rat-a-tat-tat fires three darts. Pete, that's the biggest number you can get. Therefore, Grogu wins. Yes. And Paz Visla here quoting Din Djarin, uh, who had told uh, Kid Blue here, Jimmy Kimmel's nephew in the helmet, one does not speak unless one knows. Then, Pete, look up in the sky. It is a flying beast who quickly snatches Kid Blue. Uh, Mandalorians to the sky to follow it to its lair. Uh, what follows are really, really stellar exterior shots. None of it looks computer-generated. If anything, it kind of looks like it appears like it could be real footage sped up. Maybe that is in that, you know, John Favreau style of make the computer-generated thing look a little messy. It also had me wondering, Pete, maybe they just went to, like, Lake Powell, Utah with 4K drones and flew them around a bunch of spots, and this could, for all I know, this could be real footage with Mandalorians comped in. Well, um, too, you know, back around the time this filmed, Los Angeles uh, International Airport has had several experiences where they believe they've seen someone with a jetpack in the vicinity. So how do we know they're not really doing this? That's possible, too. Um, we do see at first uh, Paz, Vizsla, then other Mandalorians uh, having their jetpacks falter. Uh, it is said that the jetpacks are out of fuel. Um, so what can they do next? Uh, well, overhead, we see Bo's ship flying past them, flying towards the sunset in just a really, really wonderful shot. The creature off in the distance, you have all the, the heat distortion, the wavy lines of heat and so forth, Bo's ship going afterwards. Just an excellent visual to take us to the title card, Chapter 20, The Foundling. Bo's ship streaks across the sky, and later she returns to the covert to tell them she kept a high altitude and followed the creature to its lair. She wants to muster a hunting party and go after it. In her ship, she shows them a hollow map of the beast's nest. Din notes how far it flew, and Paz says the mountains are too high, so their jetpacks will draw attention. The armorer says the beast would kill the child. And Bo says the spires are no higher than the peaks of Kiramorit, which she climbed in basic training. She'll fly to the foothills and scale the rest on foot. Din will join the armorer. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Din will join and the armorer instructs Paz to take the Shriek Hawk training team. Uh, the armorer will pack extended lariats for their launchers as they must avoid explosives and blasters to keep the foundling safe. We see uh, Bo-Katan's ship taking off the armorer uh, on the shore, along with Grogu and others. The armorer sees Grogu. He is called inside the cave uh, to continue his work. Story work, that is, as it turns out. Uh, inside the cave, uh, the armorer is doing all her forging of things, explaining that the forge is the heart of Mandalorian uh, culture, where, uh, metaphor alert here, 
people are reshaped as the metal is, we all begin as raw ore, get refined, not through the hammer, but rather through trials and adversity. Uh, and as the, uh, the the metal beater causes sparks and bass-like sounds here, we see Grogu troubled. Again, just the... the I cannot say, oh, this is new details on the new puppet, but just what we're getting out of this puppet, looking concerned. Wait, feeling... Wait, a flashback. Wait, a coming. Here comes the flashback. <laughs> uh, as we get, as promised in preview footage... Uh, uh, a return to the night of Order 66 with Jedi falling and uh, some of the Jedi beckoning that young Grogu be taken to Kellerin, the soon-to-be-named, soon-to-be-revealed Kellerin Beck. Yes, the uh, female Jedi giving her life to protect Grogu as he gets into the elevator, which opens to the outside, and Ahmed best matt immediately recognizable this is your jar jar performer uh he's reprising a character he has played on a star wars uh youtube show jedi temple challenge now canonized and given this tremendous heroic honor as being the one who saves grogu telling the kid everything's going to be all right picking up a saber from a fallen jedi in the elevator to now defend grogu from two tandem speeder bikes that arrive carrying clones on sublevel platform 1215 who begin firing and cutting another clone down and force pushing another off the platform it's a great return for ahmed best it's a great attack scene here I love how we get um, with the pod on what I assume would be some sort of cargo area next to the speeder. We now are doing a Star Wars version of the motorcycle with the sidecar. Um, they take off immediately being chased by a trooper gunship, which is a great design. I'm, I'm glad to see its return. I think we've seen it hither and yon in uh, whether it's this, Kenobi, whatever. But just you know, love to see that trooper gunship. Uh, the speeder is hit. Uh, that will make the landing rough. Um, they zip through the uh, the nighttime sky there in Coruscant. Uh, ultimately, Beck uses the cylindrical, cylindrical cut-through uh, that is in one of the buildings. I don't know if it's meant to be the same that we saw in Episode 2, but certainly very evocative of it. But it turns out it's also a train tunnel. Pete, I won't ponder about the virtues of having a train that just goes through a building. Maybe it then mag levs past it or whatever but he zips out of the way of the train for a moment presumably it hits the gunship and hopefully like no civilians on the train were killed uh he pulls through a a a subway station here up onto the surface wait pete that's umate rock from last week um and then takes to the sky again all heading for a landing spot with a rather familiar uh metal uh, type ship. Pete, is that of the Naboo design? The Nubian ship there, immediately recognizable. Uh, and the speeder uh, skids to a stop. Uh, Kelleran Beck checks on Grogu, unseals him from his pod there. He's unscathed. And several Naboo guards rush over. Beck telling them the clones are right behind him. 
they ask about the others, which he tells them there aren't any more of. As another gunship lands, this one carrying both your standard white clone troopers as well as some of your uh, shock troopers with the, the red adornments pouring out. The Naboo guards tell Beck to take the fueled and ready-to-go ship as they open fire on the clones. Beck and Grogu leaving as V-Wing fighters attack and follow them out of the atmosphere before the jump to hyperspace, bringing Grogu back to the clanging of the forge where the armor hammers and cools the steel before wiring its circuitry. Matt, this decision to bring Ahmed Best back, you know, regardless of how you feel about Jar Jar, and there are people, I don't mean Matt, I mean the viewer, uh, there are people on both sides, um, but this was a performer that George Lucas recruited uh, back from Stomp. Okay, you're going to be my my digital character we're going to make this innovation and uh the effect of overall criticism driving him at at one point he's he's spoken about suicidal thoughts um there was a viral post on social media where he took his son to the place that he almost decided to take his life and of all the people that John Favreau could have selected to give this honor. That was the guessing game, right? Who was it that will have spirited the child that everybody loves away and to give it to Ahmed best? This is just a wonderful turn of events. It really is. His performance here is fantastic. Uh, I immediately recognized him and Pete, I don't even know if we called it toxic fandom back then, but certainly he was at the major receiving end, which of course is ridiculous because, you know, the writer director is the one who shaped, you know, the, the Jar Jar character to a point where it then could be, could be put in his hands for performance. One also thinks they're filming Phantom Menace at a time where on-set motion capture did not exist, period. And kind of the performance capture here is more for lighting and reference. Like, it's it's so kind of early in that process. It's pre-Gollum by about four or five years between uh, when Phantom Menace started to film and then when uh, Two Towers comes out. Um, so just, it's so, so early. You know, fast forward to today where entire movies like... Uh, like Avatar are, you know, are, are built on the foundation of performance capture and things of that sort. Um, to have the the grandfather of so much of how we do things. I mean, heck, you even think like the Iron Man suit is all digital performance capture plus, you know, augmented in the computer. All of that, you know, here with Ahmed Best to have him return. And if nothing else, what would have been hey, you're not wearing a funny outfit or you're not, we're not doing, you know, crazy makeup. It's come on in, make sure, you know, the, the skin tone is looking good for the camera, put on your costume, bing, bang, boom. 
it's just a it's a wonderful feel good moment here. Indeed, Pete, I would argue, you know, for as much as Jar Jar was meant to be the clown, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but like the thing the kids are drawn to and the thing that young you know, young at heart people are drawn to, um, so too is Grogu for a different generation. Um, and here it is kind of the two the two characters and an entry point for young people meeting on screen and all of that. It's just wonderful from top to bottom passing off the baton here and even involving him. He's now a professor at Stanford on acting and, you know, uh, bringing in his expertise, the, uh, the gold inlaid on his tunic there, uh, was something that he drew inspiration for, uh, some Afrofuturism there. So just again, what a great decision and that they were able to keep the lid on this. And I haven't heard anybody say that was lame. This is dumb. And you could have think of all the other ways they might've gone here, just universally praised. And uh, yeah, it's just a moment to be happy for him and proud as a star Wars fan. As you had mentioned in the present day, the armorer has been making something uh, during, of course, the flashback here. Uh, Electronics added and so forth. She recaps that a small portion of Mandalorian earnings are given for the foundlings. uh, And indeed, that has facilitated the Beskar with which she is working now. What is it? It is a mud-horned signet on top of a rondelle for the chest of Grogu's chain mail. Uh, so if nothing else, Pete, uh, brand new word for the vocab uh, <laughs> that Rondell is a element of armor. Yes. And I guess kind of magnetically, it remains to be seen other than, all right, there's circuits in their armor. Like what it does, does it generate some kind of force field shields or something on top of the protective deflective armor but hey there's stuff in it we've seen uh in his version one armor uh dinjarin was uh kind of trying to fix it after he had taken a beating in that very early adventure on arvala 7 uh meanwhile bo's ship lands and they are on the hunt here she tells the others they will continue on foot so they don't give themselves away to the beast. Pete, I'm glad they reminded us of that because <laughs> I was so wrapped up with the very evocative but like four minute long Order 66 flashback. I had forgotten that other characters exist and the things that they said when they left on the plane journey would well, still be true. Well, just they remind night. us five times the child might die. The child that we ultimately will find out is in the gullet, if not <laughs> the stomach of this giant raptor. Uh, with nothing on but a helmet. <laughs> Listen, Pete, if you are in a situation where you might end up in the gullet of a of a, a, a of an air beast, okay, you got to wear your protection. You got to have that Mando armor on from the tip of your head down to your feet. That's what keeps you safe in there. Yeah, but he's wearing like normal clothing. He doesn't have other armor past that, <laughs> unless they're inlaying, you know, fabrics with. Beskar, which I, I suppose could be the case, but all this dude has is uh, is a helmet 
you know, but we'll get to that. Uh, they walk for a while and reach the peak in the shadow of sunset where Bo-Katan tells them they'll tuck in under the outcropping to sleep out of line of sight to climb at first light. And Paz says they will make camp later under a pair of moons. They sit around a fire and as rations are passed out, Bo asks the burning question of how they eat when others are around. Din explains they don't. They get their food and go off to find a place where they can take off their helmets. Paz tells Bo, as leader of the war party, she has the honor of staying by the fire. They go off and she removes her helmet to eat. Which answers the question that, to be fair, the show had already answered in the first season, which is, yeah, you take your helmet off when you're by yourself and you eat. Um, I, I love that it's more officially stated here, but you know, just a reminder that in the uh, Magnificent Seven episode, uh, which ends up being Magnificent Two, um, that, that we see that, the, the widow providing Mando some food, she steps away, Grogu plays with the children, and, and Mando eats. Regardless, Pete, the next morning... Are they going to fly up? No, wait. We get reminded that they're going to climb and not use jetpacks because that might rouse the beast and so forth. I'm glad they reminded us that because I couldn't remember it from the prior scene. Um, climb they do. Climbing montage. I'm wondering if maybe um, they watched, they, the people making the show, had watched uh, the Oscar-winning documentary Free Solo on Disney Plus uh, about the uh, the first free solo climb of El Capitan, which is a great documentary to watch. Um, so, uh, sometimes scary as you contemplate thousands of feet of sheer granite uh, that if you mess up, you can fall to your doom. They're not free climbing, though, Pete. They, of course, you might have heard they're going to use you know, climbing gear because it's been mentioned a few times here. They make their way up. They're all of a sudden they're at the the edge of the massive nest. A a non kid blue helmet there showing that this has happened again. Perhaps it will happen, or this has happened before. Perhaps it will happen again. Um, but there is a heat signature on the other side. Pete, I'm sure everything's going to go great. Quick, don't do any more investigating. Uh, let's have Paz Vizzle just leap towards the heat Ragnar! signature. Ragnar! Um, but surprise, it's actually hatchlings there, huge yet adorable. Uh, and then from the background, great use of space here, the the mama bird rising up uh, into view. And this is where uh, she coughs up Ragnar, a.k.a. Kid Blue, still alive, not covered in any sort of stomach or throat uh, <laughs> fluids here. Pete, it's a Disney show. Um, and Paz attacks, Ragnar dropped, Paz in the mouth. Ragnar in the foot. It's just getting worse, Pete, before it gets better. Yes, flying off here. The Mandalorians jet after it. Bo tells Ragnar to take her hands, but is swatted away, losing a Beskar uh, pauldron shoulder piece in the process. She catches back up, shooting her lariat and stabbing the raptor to get it to release Paz from its mouth. As the other Mandalorians attack, Din lassos its right wing, getting it to release Ragnar as it drops. Uh, Din catches him, and the raptor splashes into the water, where a rock croc instantly seizes it 
in its jaws. And Din returns Ragnar to Paz, who asks if he's okay. Ragnar tells his dad he's okay, and he thanks Din. Uh, the sky beast being eaten by the croc, Pete, always a reminder that there's always a bigger croc. Yes. Later, Bo's ship lands. Uh, one gets the the idea that perhaps the uh, the coverted Mandalorians are like that they don't know what the outcome was. I guess they didn't, you know, like send a text message. Hey, all good. No one died. <laughs> um, but indeed, successful outing. Hooray, hooray. The Mandalorians will, because it is a weird alien thing, they will clap uh, wrist pieces together as opposed to Wakanda using your... forever style. Uh, a, a bit. Yes. <laughs> um, the armor, by the way, has brought Gogu, Grogu along with the others to, to see people exiting the ship. Yay. Ragnar's return. Mando picks up Grogu emotions, Pete. Um, the armor notes that Bo-Katan has done the highest honor that one can do saving a foundling. So increasingly, you know, uh, Bo-Katan welcomed into the bosom of this covert here. Oh, by the way, there's three more foundlings. What? It's the baby beasts. And we could discuss, Pete, in theories, whether they're going to be uh, food or not. <laughs> well, I mean, she says that they're in need of care and training. And they're lured down the ramp here with meat. I just want to know from director Carl Weathers here, like... Are those giant CGI effects purely? Were there stand-ins on the set? Is Ahmed Best, you know, there doing motion capture as these giant baby birds with the adorable eyes here kind of falling over? Uh, but the armor notes uh, Bo's missing armor and tells her to come with her. In the forge... The armor explains she can replace it, but not with its modern refinements, which kind of begs the question, wait, she's made stuff for Din Djarin that's all, you know, gleaming and seems ultra modern. Um, but Bo-Katan, uh, I'm sorry, the armor asks uh, if she should inlay uh, the signet of the night owl and Bo asks uh, after looking at the mythosaur, if that would be acceptable to wear um, alongside it. And the armor explains that the mythosaur belongs to all Mandalorians and is always acceptable to wear. She crafts it, and Bo asks what the armorer would say if she told her she saw a mythosaur. She says that she would consider that very lucky, for it's a noble vision. But Bo clarifies she saw a real one in the living waters on Mandalore. And the armor merely tells her that when you choose to walk the way of the Mandalore, you will see many things. But it was real. And the armor merely tells her this is the way. Let's chase down some theories. Rock crocs. Rock raptors. 
I don't know, Matt, maybe find a different place to put your covert that's not going to make uh, little children uh, food for these animals? I agree. I think you agree. I think the Mandalorian covert there in Assemble does not agree. I mean, I'm sure they don't want... I'm sure they don't want, you know, kids eaten and so forth, but with this credo of steel sharpening steel and with the trials and tribulations of life only making one stronger. Um, I can only imagine that is their excuse. And, and again, I don't, I don't love it from my kind of, uh, you know, I'll say modern perspective and so forth. If this is what is, I think very clearly it's meant to be, this is what's working for them. And they have chosen this place, not only because it is so out of the way and private but the the difficulty of this place uh probably is to them a feature in terms of keeping others away but also just as one should be vigilant that uh, the empire might arise again so too one must be vigilant uh that the rock crocs might appear so you know just let your force sensitive equivalent of a three-year-old sit there and play with uh play with crabs the entire time because you never know when a rock croc might show up it's clearly story dependent because the more we're exposed to Grogu, this idea that he's some kind of force animal wrangler communicant. You know, I, I love the reveal that the rocks aren't rocks, that they're crabs. Because initially you're like, he's moving them. This is the force. And then all right, one of them was a hermit crab and then he's picked up and now they're all free to go. Almost like they wanted to be in his orbit because of this connection. So now, you know, you've got these giant raptor hatchling boundlings. Um, we have a mythosaur out there. We have these purgle. He's done this with a ferocious rampaging rancor his path as a mandalorian foundling might be to ultimately wield a lightsaber i don't think we're going to see him with a blaster or you know maybe a jetpack that, that could be kind of cool um but you know not everybody's gifted with the same abilities or even limited to certain abilities and he has something that other Mandalorians don't that they could certainly use and benefit from. Add to it the uh, very clear, very intentional line as the uh, the rescue party is flying away when the armorer says to Grogu, you know, your time will come. That was kind of where I kind of sat up and said they have some sort of timeline and expectations and so forth, not just... You know, oh, if we do this show long enough, whatever, we'll we'll age him up. Like, oh, as is so oftentimes the case with this show, oh, there really is a plan that's running through it. Um, I think, too, the notion of the baby beasts being returned, on the one hand, it seems like such a weird thing. Like, A, why would you collect them and so on and so forth? You want to say it's part of the Mandalorian creed to, what, not leave a child without its mother? Uh, or you want to go full on, you know, winner, winner, chicken dinner, we will eat these. 
but again, as you point out, Grogu has this connection to animals. It even has me wondering, and look, these are alien fake flying baby uh, raptors and so forth. So you can age them as quickly as you want and so forth. It did have me wondering, however, do we use their growth as some sort of uh, measure of time since Grogu does not age as the rest of us do? And since all these Mandalorians don't age visibly on camera because of the whole (laughs) helmet thing, you know, do you counting time by Bo-Katan's hair? Yeah. Like what we're doing. It's, it's longer from when we saw her in, in season two, the, the, the wig now is shoulder length. Whereas before, uh, you know, with the headband, you know, kind of just back to her, you know, hairline to her, you know, neck. Um, so, exactly. Do do we get, you know, um, juvenile baby beasts next week and a week after that passing reference to, oh, having had these for one year now and you go, wait, we just missed a year. And the answer could be, yeah, nothing really interesting happened in the last year. Like, like that is OK. And, and frankly, I'm thinking of Fargo season one. I'm thinking of other shows that just kind of casually go, oh, a bunch of time has gone by. Keep up. Um, it's a cool story thing, and I think that again, the minute the, the minute that you see the baby beasts starting to fly on their own while still you know in a harness or or a rope attached or something like that, be prepared for you know oh yeah, eighteen months went by, no big deal. Yeah, uh, the the timeline, the plan for those, I would fully expect to see training of those hatchlings how far along they want to accelerate their growth. I mean, we're, we're not leaving Mandalorians, I think, for some time. And you mentioned with Grogu here, the armorer's expectation that his time is going to come, the notion of him speaking and speaking the words of this creed here, and even that he would wear a helmet. Now that I think you've got to handle very carefully his little face is the money maker of this show uh right after it is a, a mandalorian t-shaped visor how do you potentially marry the two and still keep the cuteness knowing that he won't be able to show his face in the helmet um it, i think is something you've really got to consider as you head down that path. I am reminded, uh, as I've said before, I'm reminded of how well-constructed John Favreau and company create these season stories. And perhaps one could infer multi-season oh, man, stories. I read a blog and saw a YouTuber that half this season of the Mandalorian is aimless and has no urgency. <laughs> alas i mean it, it th- that is not the case um so again favreau creating these very compact stories where you don't always recognize intention in the first third that only pays off in the last third and so forth however i am also remembered of the you know ron moore aesthetic particularly with battlestar galactica where hey we came up with a cool thing to end an act to end a scene to end a season what does it all mean I don't know. We were just going to kick the can to next season and 
writers are going to figure it out because it's all fake anyway. Again, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a Favreau aesthetic, but either approach can work. Well, and that's just it. Like these understand listener, like, and again, I'll, I'll die on this hill. Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia were only related once that was decided. That was not a thing for those first two films. And again, like, it could just be, hey, one day we want to do something with a more mature Grogu. When is that? You know, Favreau may have said, I have no idea, but it's not going to be a John Favreau joint making The Mandalorian for the next five years. But maybe somebody else does it. Maybe it's me at a different point in life. Maybe it's with different technology. Like, There's all these options here, particularly with Star Wars, that at its best is leaving that wide expanse universe out there with the knowledge that maybe it's you who picks up the story and maybe it's not. Um, but again, if, if nothing else to sit and say, yeah, we have a hint of how this character is going to grow, but we're not setting it up for this season nor next season. And we don't really have a five-year plan where it's like in year six, that's when he's like, whatever dudes, now it's time for me to rock and roll with my helmet on. Cause I'm teen Grogu. Like if, <laughs> if there is no plan, that's okay. In this one regard, that's okay too. Yeah, I mean, with the age of the character, he can look like this for a long time. And you don't put a helmet over that face. So is there another way to potentially address it? Yeah, the story could say they leave this. There's a rejiggering of the creed that not everybody wears the helmet at all times anymore. Um, There's story room for that to happen um let me ask you about ragnar the bat and there had been speculation that he was the son of Paz vizsla that's now been spoken on screen uh he has challenged at least for playtime uh grogu here they've had it out grogu besting him uh and now of course uh dinjarin um being uh you know indebted by paz and ragnar um because of the rescue but do you get the sense that maybe the armorer is mom i think that she certainly has a maternal energy for the covert it would be an interesting uh development to say that she is also the the biological mother of ragnar I mean, let's not forget when last we saw this covert prior to this season, which is to say in uh, the Mandalorian-centric episodes of Book of Boba Fett, it was a um, it was a covert of two, the Armorer and Paz Vizsla. Pete, I know we will have some wise suppositions from Fred and Netherlands in a little bit about how Mandalorians <laughs> proceed with certain acts and so forth. I would just like to posit, Pete, Look, if you're living in the bowels of uh, Discworld, as the Armorer and Paz Vizsla were, just hanging out by yourselves all day, at a certain point, perhaps one does consider uh, certain uh, actions and so forth that may result in a little Ragnar popping along. Um, now, timeline-wise, if we're, what, a year or two after Book of Boba Fett, Ragnar does not look a year or two old, but Pete, maybe... Maybe Ragnar could have been dropped off by the um, the rock stork 
you know, eight, ten years ago, and that might be the bond uh, with which the Armorer and Paz Vizsla continue to pal around in the universe. There were other Mandalorians on uh, Navarro in that covert. I'd like to believe that Ragnar was with them and we just didn't see them. There were children there. Maybe he went with auntie and uncle while Armorer <laughs> and Paz Vizsla went to the ring world. It's possible. It's possible. Um, and again, we've had it set up that they're scattered amongst the stars, that they kind of find one another. And, you know, this training montage at the beginning. Okay. All right. So that you, you train so that later on you can go not just on a hunting party mission, but on other missions. The other story of this episode with Kelleran Beck and that he grabs a uh, fighter, a, a vessel of uh, Naboo origin, doesn't have to head there, but it'd be kind of cool if he went to Naboo and met up with Jar Jar and you can involve him in Grogu's story and have Ahmed Best meet Ahmed Best. Pete, are you proposing hashtag justice for Jar Jar? Because that would be that would that that really is a tantalizing possibility. And I think as well, you know, we've had one. Th this episode would appear to answer the question: What happened to Grogu between being in the temple and being saved? Uh, okay, again, it would appear that we now have the answer. I'd like to, to propose fine he's off coruscant and there aren't uh you know there aren't stormtroopers chasing him down as you're saying where did he go what happened next we still have a chunk of years where he's in hiding and where his memories uh conveniently that's smart writer stuff for john favreau did not have an answer that he wanted to seed back in the episode of the yep. jedi um but what happened oh f faded memories um i would welcome more story maintenance on the uh, you know on this ongoing flashback to a point pete look this is the shortest episode of the season when i clicked on it after a very busy day and so, saw that it was 31 or 32 minutes long and i was like oh my goodness like i know we're gonna have a previously on i know we're gonna have a star wars title logo i know we're gonna have <laughs> chapter 20 whatever i know we're gonna have credits is this going to feel short the answer is no this is a complete meal let the size of the plate equal the size of the meal. This is a full meal. It just happens to not be, you know, buffet-style meal. Um, it's a, it, This is the equal of the almost twice as long episode from last week where we got Mando's story and flashback, flash side story and all of this. Like, what a, what, what a rich treat this week. What a rich treat last week, despite the fact that there's varying run times and different emphasis, emphasis on different characters. Nobody's getting cheated here. Okay. And like you're saying that as Grogu continues on his path, Mandalorian or no definite development, wisely you're going to continue to drop in these flashbacks of what he's experienced and it's a great way to look into star wars past to bring in these nods i mean matt we haven't even spoken yet tamora morrison is in this episode 
Tamora Morrison is in this episode. Oh, by the clone, by way of the clone troopers. He's voicing all of them. Okay, that you can continue to reach and do that. You've got all this previous design. You've got all this previous previous history that you can use to service the current story uh, and enrich. And it's you know it's unusual for Star Wars in that it's normally, and this is what's going on now, and I'll tell you about what happened before and, and that we're able to traffic in these flashbacks. You know, the, the one thing I was curious about was how were you going to get, previously Grogu has this flashback because Luke is, helping him to remember how, how did you survive? Where were you? What went on? So really, you know, our window into that is Luke using the force to commune with Grogu. Okay. So that's your, your storytelling mechanism. How's he going to do it without Luke? Okay. Now he can sit there, he can watch something and we as viewers can be treated to his memory of this. The only other way would be for him to communicate this. Um, which could eventually be the case. Um, but I, I don't think you rush catching up. And, and then I went away and never service it again either. You know, you strategically drop these in. And it's just a great way to delve into the further lore of Star Wars past and present particularly and, and i would i would argue that favreau has been too successful in his star wars tenure he's been too successful to sit and say oh man people like this people don't like that i must make major course corrections quite frankly a la george with george R. pinks and so forth um but if you want to lay out this season where you say i know some people will be challenged by the notion that uh, that chapter 19 will involve a minor character, Dr. Pershing, uh, having a lengthy bit of story. The majority of the story will be him interacting with an even more minor character. And, you know, clearly we're doing story maintenance that is forward-looking, uh, so we don't fully appreciate the nature of it. But as a standalone story, it's going to have all these merits, but the big demerit is it's not the Mandalorian, it's not baby yoda it's not mandalorian culture for that whole portion of the story okay what do you do the next episode it is entirely about the mandalorian mandalorian culture and baby yoda and his secret flashback like the whole thing is what some people said was lacking of last week's episode uh and i think that's a really heads up way to do it where you know, if now the mark against this episode is, well, they didn't really move the story forward much in terms of the larger galactic picture and who is it who attacked Bo last week and uh, how is it setting up Ahsoka and Skeleton Crew? True, we we got that we got that maintenance last week. We got the, we got the story moved forward greatly last week. This week, it's more a reflection on culture and character and past and so forth. And that's only the last two episodes. Like, what a what a treat! And it further dovetails the narrative throughout Star Wars. You know, let's look at Jar Jar, conceived as a sidekick. This will be the prequels, Chewbacca, and again, wherever you stand on that, 
too juvenile, potentially offensive in terms of the way the character comes off with speech pattern, whatever it's going to be, it didn't take off. So what's the makeup? George decides, all right, Jar Jar wasn't the hit I hoped for. What do I know kills? Boba Fett kills. Okay, what if I make Boba Fett's dad the template for all the clones and Boba Fett had been a clone and we get all these here and that you can now all these years later intermix these two stories. We have that because of, I don't want to say the failure because I don't think Jar Jar was a failure, Um, but just because of the way that it went. Um, So yeah, it it really kind of strangely ends up benefiting. And then you bring Ahmed back for this gigantic hero turn. And, you know, I, I just can't help but feel so happy for the guy to, to get this 24 years later, um, the, the redemption tour and, and the respect and everything like that for somebody who cares very much about his performance, who cares very much about star Wars and, and now to have his star really shine with this, it's, it's just awesome. And, you know, I, I hope we see more of him with, Grogu in that time and maybe handing him off um, and and all the uh, space that we have within the story. Um, but Matt, the armorer not being impressed by Bo-Katan's disclosure of having seen a mythosaur, Din Djarin not told either, um, I, I think that's an important aspect and, you know, the slightest acknowledgement of, of some of those YouTubers, a lack of urgency. I mean, we end this episode with that news and it's not like there's a clear trajectory to what's next. A, the trajectory is only clear week to week, uh, particularly if we are going to be flexible with when in the chronology the next episode can take place. I think too, you know, as I've said in earlier podcasts for this season, I, I had not fully appreciated until this season, how the armorer is part artisan and part religious figure here. So for, for Bo to be called into the sanctuary space for Bo to be sharing with mother confessor that, you know, hey, Mother Confessor, you know those stories that you say are real? I have shocking a shocking reveal here. Um, maybe somebody did turn water into wine for real. Maybe the mythosaur is real. I think for the armorer to, to kind of, you know, rather blithely essentially say, yeah, this religion is not some uh, hokey ancient collection of stories. Like, we believe the religion is real, so cool, thanks for telling me that it's real. We all believe it's real. Um, I think that's in line with the with the new religious understanding that we can have for the Armorer character this season. Um, I think, too, I will just... Im- I will take the... Uh, I will make the implication, uh, or I will take the, make the inference, rather, that 
when sharing with the armorer in this most sacred space, it is as if it is a confession. I don't think we're going to find, you know, next episode, Din Djarin saying, well, you didn't tell me they actually saw a thing and I went to the armor and she's telling everybody about it. Like there, there is a religiousness to these scenes that I think is more and more apparent each week. Um, and indeed, Pete, looking ahead, I'd like to get you on the record for a couple of things. Will this season, uh, will we find out who attacked Bo-Katan? Will we get more Grogu flashback? And what, you know, here we are at the midpoint of the season. Will we get more Grand Moff Gideon? Will we get more Dr. Pershing? Um, wh- what's your expectation for the next month of The Mandalorian? Yes, no, yes, yes. Uh, wait, that was a no to which one? Grogu flashback? No more Grogu flashbacks. Uh, yes to all the others. That could... Well, I, I think that, that was about three things that you said yeses to with four episodes to go. That's a nice... That's a nice kind of um, set of road, you know, road signs along the way to take us. And again, I'll, I'll just repeat, as I have said already, we really only understand the arc of these seasons when they are over. I think that's something that's so elegant in the writing and in the construction of a season of The Mandalorian. So, it, again, it will be interesting. You know, an easy one is to say, when Moff Gideon appears and Dr. Pershing says, no, no, you won't do the bad things again because you abused the cloning and I thought the cloning could be good, therefore... I will push the red button to stop the climactic uh, last episode thing. You know, then we will look back and go, oh, that's why you had to sit for half an hour in episode, you know, in part 19 to better understand this character. Again, I think that's a, that, that's a somewhat hackneyed. That's an easier prediction to make, but we'll see how the rest of the season unfolds. <laughs> All right, extend that antenna. Pete, starting on Twitter, as we so oftentimes do, uh, there was the following uh, voting options to rate this episode. Uh, one angry face, why Luke no kill? Pete, I know it's a nonsensical answer. It's because to to, to, to dislike this episode is uh, nonsensical. That nonetheless got 2.7%. So congrats, people who don't follow Fantastic Geek. And don't listen to the podcast. You found a Twitter poll with hashtag The Mandalorian, hashtag Star Wars, where you downvoted it. Uh, two stars, Giant Bird Poo got 0%. Three stars, So Many Mandos got 35.1%. And then four stars, It's The Best. You see, Pete, I used some wordplay there. I was referring to Ahmed Best, uh, the best in Star Wars. Uh, Twenty, uh, Pardon me, 62.2%, so definitely lots of enthusiasm there. Some replies to our uh, Twitter poll here, Pete, uh, at BikeBRH. I found myself wondering if the three foundlings at the end were just an episode-ending joke, or are they going to follow up on that as the show continues? Uh, Pete, I know we've discussed this, but I would I would like to point out that for where we are right now, it could be either. It, it is interesting, again, that story of flexibility. And I uh, think, too, you've, you've seen a pattern of narrative waste, you know, that we've returned to a number of things. You don't need to do it the following episode, the following week, but you can come back to it down the line. We hear from uh, Eric Pritchard at coach underscore Pritch. More Amanda lore. See, he capitalized the word lore because it's their 
yeah, anyhow, Ahmed Best finally becomes a Jedi. Perhaps Bo-Katan just earned some goodwill from Paz Vizsla, an interesting mentor relationship developing with the armorer. And Grogu is tougher than he looks. Hashtag stay fantastic. We hear also Pete from uh, Darren Bell. That's at Darth Rasslin 79. I thought this was an enjoyable, action-packed episode. I'm starting to think there's more to Grogu than meets the eye. He had a lot of Jedi protecting him. Also, someone needs to talk to the Mando clan about moving somewhere safer. Uh, and the reply by at Drive-By Pod. I thought the same thing. Uh, the wildlife on at least... Uh, that area on the planet is clearly problematic. Seems like they could find a better refuge. This episode had all I needed. Beast battles, rocket packs, Jedi jumps, and Mando lore. This episode keeps kicking. Uh, next, Pete, we hear from Ian Silverman at Sylvie underscore 76. I can't believe we're already halfway through the season. Obviously, I didn't love uh, that this episode was so short and that it didn't do much to move the larger story forward, but still plenty to enjoy nonetheless. Uh, Order 66 flashback was awesome. I knew from preseason trailers that we'd be seeing more of this, but wasn't expecting it at that moment. Seeing Ahmed Best back in Star Wars and flashing some mad dual lightsaber-wielding clone-killing skills. Uh, Misa say, okie day. Also, <laughs> also nice callback to last week's episode with the Coruscant Street Chase taking us past Umate in Monument Plaza. Really hoping we could see more of this part of the story at some point. Sure looked like those troops and ships uh, were from Naboo, so is that where Grogu ended up? Also, my nine-year-old son and I already have a little Star Wars inside joke, where if he's getting a little amped up or overexcited, I say, patience, young Padawan. After this episode, I will definitely be looking for chances to tell him one doesn't speak unless one knows. <laughs> well done there, Ian. Next up, Andre Yeager at Dr. Polo 1983. Uh, Ahmed Best finally redeemed for Jar Jar. Loved the escape from Order 66. Good team building episode with Bo-Katan and Din being integrated into the covert. All I want to know is how they're going to get, uh, how they're going to find enough food for those baby raptors. Going to get expensive real quick. He's, he's not wrong. Uh, next, Arya needs a spinoff. Did, did kill the previous croc. Conceivably, they've got that all salted away. True, true. Uh, or perhaps in the best storytelling tradition, they will grow large with things that happen off screen. Yeah. Um, uh, you needs a spinoff at KCLYLE1 on Twitter says, uh, missing this too. So much to catch, catch up on when I get home. Uh, Spider-Ham Lincoln tests LC139 says, chapter 20 was good but not great. Favorite sequence was Grogu's escape with Jar Jar. Oops, I mean Kelleran Beck. I like that they skirted by the Coruscant mountaintop that we saw in Chapter 19. Biggest gripe, Ragnar should have been long dead uh, as much time as it took to rescue him. Jimmy Kimmel's nephew to die. <laughs> um, Sci-fi story aside, I didn't buy that the pterosaur didn't already feed him to its babies or that he wasn't dead from stomach acid regurgitation trauma. Anyway, I've always loved Star Wars in any form. And to steal a phrase from another Disney property, Make Mine Mando. Uh, there was a reply there from uh, Portland Val twenty three who said he should have been, uh, should have at least been slimy. I would say yes, except alien. You know, regardless, Pete. Moving on to uh, Noel Gardner at Noel Camille. I can't believe Din had Grogu challenge without ever practicing. I guess we're going to we're going by Boba survived the Sarlacc rule the Sarlacc rules of survival. I think Bo Katan and the Armorer will clash. I wonder how the group will side. Uh, about that flashback, so Jedi Temple challenges canon, right? 
Pete, I'll let you answer that. Is the Jedi Temple Challenge trivia show, is that now officially canon? Uh, I mean, the character is. They changed the outfit a little bit, but that was with, you know, input from Ahmad Best. So, yeah, I, I think you have to say that it is. Pete, I know Noel wondering if Bo-Katan and the Armorer will clash. Um, Pete, how about we go in the other direction? Maybe maybe sparks will fly between them in, in another way. One never knows. Last tweet here from JT Adkins. JTA is me on Twitter. May I predict a mighty battle with Grogu riding the Mythosaur and Mando on a Rancor with dragon babies providing air support? <laughs> I kind of feel like if we don't get that, then I'll be a little bit disappointed. Yeah, uh, Pete, now that you've you've put it out there, I mean, we know that Mandalorians are going to go to Navarro this season. That's one of the other pieces of footage that we have. We've not seen any beasts with them. That could be the case, certainly. Uh, you know, if if things got tough, to kind of turn the tide. Uh, I know that uh, I know. I said that was the last uh, tweet. However, uh, the immaculate. Fred from the Netherlands, uh, petrified underscore Fred on Twitter. He'd gotten his stars uh, crossed a little bit and uh, had shared some Mandalorian thoughts on our Star Trek uh, question. So here we go for Fred uh, saying, eating together is not allowed in Mandalorian society because you have to take your helmet off. Wow. I wonder how this is a familial setting. Is it allowed then? Or will the Thanksgiving dinner, if they have one, be with helmets on? Uh, Pete, he then also wonders, I'll just rephrase this slightly, he wonders how Mandalorian intimacies are carried out, whether that is with the helmet on or off as well. Pete, they said no, they said the helmet must stay on. I'm assuming that, you know, Occam's Razor says that's the simplest answer, and the helmet stays on even for that, too. I mean, there is an element of protection, but if you're trying to uh, proliferate, yeah, not so much. Um Interesting that Fred from the Netherlands brings up Thanksgiving. Uh, indeed, I, I, Fred, I'd love to hear is is Thanksgiving uh, observed in any capacity in the Netherlands? Uh, has uh, are you just familiar with it through pop culture? What, I, what what that line is? Pete, look at this: Star Wars bringing us all together at the Thanksgiving table of Star Wars. Uh, to the email inbox we go, an email from Steve Adams who says this show never fails to deliver. Some thoughts I have had in recent days make me wonder if we will see the final destruction of Mandalore. What would happen if the Mandalorian what would happen to the Mandalorians if they had no hope in ever returning home? They are there are still some Imperials who may have a score to settle with them. Also, are we setting up a rescue of Grogu by Paz Vizsla to repay the debt of Din saving his son? Ooh. That sounds like a Favreau thing, Pete. That does. I'd be interested in a storyline that uh, culminated with that. Yeah. Uh, Steve goes on to say, it was good to finally see how Grogu escaped the Jedi Temple, although he clearly, he has clearly not fully come to grips with that terrible night yet. I do wonder if maybe the Covert should look for another planet with smaller predators, Pete. That's obviously a common thread in the comments this week. They Uh, may have sought this out. I mean, given how different beasts adorn their armor, you know, mythosaurs and mud horns and so on and so forth. That might be like a unspoken aspect of the creed at this point, like that these things imbue their covert, their tribe, their clan with strength. 
particularly when one contrasts their sect with let's say kind of the more mainstream um experience that we've seen with Bo-Katan like I could see how the armorer and Paz Vizza look down on like oh Bo-Katan takes off her helmet and when she's hungry she goes to a restaurant and eats food that somebody else yeah probably was even dead when the restaurant got it, it probably was dead before that you know I, I, so let's live the the rough and tough life of our ancestors anyhow back to Steve here all in all, another winner of an episode. I do want to address the point that was raised last week about entrapment. As a student of criminal justice, when I was in college, entrapment was explained to us as forcing or coercing someone to do something illegal that they would not have done if left to their own devices. While I would certainly not call Ilya Kane's actions ethical, in my opinion, I do not see it as entrapment either. Maybe someone else with more legal experience or knowledge could clear the matter up uh, a bit better. I've rambled uh, long enough, so until next week, stay fantastic. Pete, I would say no ramble there. If Steve has criminal justice coursework in his background, that's more than I do. And if he's saying Kane's actions were unethical but not fitting the, uh, the, the you know, our world definition of entrapment, I mean, that works for me. And that's also in line with the, in line with the ethics of the episode, in line with the legality of the episode where she is not considered to have crossed the line. And what do we show Dr. Pershing doing? Speaking about his cloning research. So it's not like you're deus ex machining that into the story. And he wanted clone science stuff. Um, They're both reminding us, they're showing the people of Coruscant. So ultimately that could be argued in a court so yeah i mean by that definition by that explanation it tracks particularly since you know as we discussed last week the emperor was only able to do what he did because of this clone trooper quasi you know this this police force that was only loyal to him that had a secret I don't know if they know about Order 66 as a built-in clone thing and so forth, but you know the Emperor just would have been a guy in charge. Of, he would have just been the, the Chancellor um, without that army in place to leverage the conflict and so forth. So uh, wise words there from Steve Adams. And Pete, now we go to the wise words again of Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with a little feedback for The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 4. I think I can be brief about this episode. It's really a action-packed, very good CGI episode. Did it bring the story much further? I don't think so. The whole story was more or less about a captured kid... And we are going to try to rescue him. And that was actually the whole story. Although we see some things of Mandalorian society here. Having a nice and cozy meal at the campfire is obviously not possible. We learn here that the Mandalorian kid is actually a kid of one of the other Mandalorians. Well, that's logical. But I really wonder how this creed and not removing your helmet is done within a family setting. Are you not allowed to eat together with your helmets off even within the family? Or how do you do 
Mandalorian sex, for instance, with or without helmet. I really wonder why they brought these raptor chicks with them. Is that because of the younger viewers of this series? Because otherwise they would react, oh, what's going to happen to these poor, poor little chicks? Well, we saw in that nest that they are not so innocent. Or are we getting a setting like in the movies of Avatar, where they can fly on these raptors? Mandalorians love flying anyhow. It's a pity that we didn't see anything about the Dr. Pershing story, the follow-up of that, because that was a complete Chekhov's gun in the sense of we have to get back to that story because it took too much in the last episode in time. But we have probably to wait until one of the next episodes to continue that story. Talking about Chekhov's guns, the fact that Bokatan talks to the armorer about the Mythosaur and get the Mythosaur sign on her shoulder is also a Chekhov's gun and we will surely go back somehow to this Mythosaur. Last thing, and that was actually about previous episode, recreating clones of one DNA strand. Um, they should have had a better scientific consultant there. Humans have 46 chromosomes, so you could say 46 strands. And I know it's all about a galaxy far, far away, so perhaps they aren't even human. And of course there are animals with less amount of chromosomes, but one is really crazy. Normally you get one set from your father and one set from your mother. Well, in nature there are at least two organisms in real nature that have one chromosome. One is a roundworm and the other one is the male of a Australian ant, the jack jumper, but the females have two. Even a fruit fly has eight chromosomes, four sets. Okay, that will be all for this time. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Well, there you have it, Matt. And I think Star Wars just found its genetic consultant. Absolutely. Fred's words also had me thinking, you know, you have a big property like Star Wars, you have all this money flowing in and so forth. It must be really weird to to be Favreau, to be one of these writers and say, all right, we can go anywhere with this. Hey, what if we do this, you know, flying creature and so forth? I wonder if at a certain point, do these do writers like Favreau say, well, wait, can I contribute something new to flying creatures in a post-Game of Thrones world um here we have avatar which you know as favreau is making this avatar 2 is not out yet but clearly on its way and so forth like and clearly the first movie you know well remembered and so forth it must just be weird to be like i can do star wars dragons dare i when there's a dragon show that's already been out in game of thrones and when there's house of the dragon when there's avatar that must be a weird experience to be like we can do it we have the power but do i put pencil to paper with such a thing yeah, and you have the option at this point. How they're going to go, how it'll play out remains to be seen, but here we are. Pete, certainly eager and grateful to have our covert continuing to support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. 
Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, all sorts of levels to choose from, but it takes just a dollar a month to get you behind that door. Can't contribute right now? Get yourself over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating or review to any of our 33 podcast feeds. Helps us just as much. Pete, let's certainly keep the conversation going. How can people be in touch with you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,817 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter, looking back lost, do be in touch with the podcast, comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the P and the H, like it today. Looking ahead on the calendar, tomorrow on Star Trek Sunday, we will be talking the latest episode of Star Trek Picard, and it was a doozy. If you're here just for Star Wars, we, of course, are back next Star Wars Saturday to talk about the latest chapter of The Mandalorian. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. One does not speak unless one knows. One does not speak unless one knows.